Hello, Agnes. Hi, Robin. What should we talk about today? You've already decided what we're going to talk about, <laughs> which is um, inspiration. Um, so... Do we need to tell people why that's important? Um, I think... I I think on another episode, you said something to the effect that motivation is one of the big mysteries for you and maybe one of the big mysteries for an economist. Where does motivation come from? And inspiration is going to be interesting, at least in part, because it's a source of motivation. Um, so, is it a big source? I mean, can we bound it? Is it like... 10% of motivation, 1%, 1 in 1,000? Is, is it a big fraction of motivation? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but I think that um, uh, I think that one reason why we value inspiration is not in the quantity of motivation that we get from it, but in the times so you can be quite depressed or down or just feel demotivated. And then something that is inspiring can pick you up at those moments. And so one thing that inspiration does for us is give us motivation at times when we would otherwise be depleted of motivation. And that might be especially valuable, even if it's not a, a, a large total amount of motivation. So in the power industry... There are some kinds of power sources that take a while to turn on. And then there's these other kind of power sources that you can turn on instantly. And then people are more willing to pay for that second kind of power source because if the first goes out, it can just jump in immediately. And so you might think we're more willing to pay for motivation that can be on call in a moment's notice uh, rather than a motivation that takes you know years to build, slowly build up. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I think that often if we thought that somebody had a switch they could flip to inspire us, that would actually um, itself undermine the inspirational force of um, what they say. But I think it's that there's a weird way in which inspiration can even be generic. So, like, I can be motivated to eat by being hungry, but the only thing that hunger can really do is motivate me to eat or to get food. It can't. Um, right. Often, even if what I need to do in order to eat um, is like if it's if it's sort of sufficiently laborious, it's happened to me where like I'm in a hotel room and I'm really hungry. But like in order to get food, I have to like leave my hotel room and go and get something. And I'm just like not motivated enough, even though I'm quite hungry. Right. So, okay. so there's a way in which motivation is a kind of a, inspiration gives you some kind of a generic motivation. Okay, so inspiration has these two nice features compared to other motivations, even if it's yeah. maybe a small part of the overall. One is that it appears at moments when we especially need it quickly, we could say, even if maybe yeah. we want it to be controllable. Right, it right. It still right. appear right. suddenly, when, especially when we need it. And then it might work across a wide range of behaviors and action areas, motivate us to do many things. Yes. Um um, yes, I think that that's right. Um, and But there's like a reason we were interested in this question, which is like both of us were, read this manifesto, the future futurism manifesto that Mark Andreessen made. And, um, you know, we were both struck maybe for somewhat different reasons by 
it's not seeming to us to be inspiring. Um, and you largely agree with it. And yet you still don't find it inspiring. And so that just raises the question, what does it take for something, um, for some vision of a better life or better world or whatever? What does it take for that vision to inspire us? Clearly, accuracy and desirability are insufficient. That is, accuracy about what would be desirable is not sufficient to inspire. Right. So we, we might say among intellectuals who write essays or give speeches, what they're trying to do is perhaps has a larger fraction of inspiration. Uh, that is, they, they have a limited number of ways they could influence their readers or audience. One of them is they could inform them or persuade them. And another is they might inspire them. And perhaps we, many of us in that mode, hope to inspire people. So it becomes a larger fraction of the hopes of writers or speakers. And that makes it more relevant for us, uh, being writers and speakers, to figure out inspiration. Right. Um, I guess it, it seems to me that there are certain kinds of writers where a big part, like you are, are this kind of writer, where a big part of their brand is this person is not going to bullshit you and they're going to tell it like it is. And they're going to give you an kind of accurate view of the unsavory aspects of the human experience. It seems to me it's going to be especially hard for people like that to be inspiring. But some of them are. So I, I have felt inspired by such people in the past, mm -hmm. but, but it may be more of a niche thing. But I, I guess I think we learn something about inspiration by thinking about why, let's say like, reductive materialism or something right like the idea that when you boil everything down it's like matter in motion and we can understand every highest ideal of the human experience in terms of just matter in motion so um reductive views in general are often thought to be like uninspiring though perhaps true um and the people who avow them would say, look, you shouldn't care so much about being inspired that you are going to feed yourself a bunch of idealistic lies. Um, so there is this kind of tension between the demand to be inspired and the demand to like see the world for how it really is. And if true, it's a very sad and difficult trade-off. But since we initially don't think we understand inspiration, it seems premature to give up too quickly. Let's first figure out what it is and maybe how it works and where it can work. And then maybe we can find a way that you could both be truthful and inspiring. Uh, it may not find it, but it seems to me, first, we want to just get to the bottom of this thing and figure out what's going on. I agree. I'm, I, I take myself just to be describing some surface features of inspiration. And that is one of them. Namely, there is a prima facie tension between um, kind of cynically or reductively um, um, telling it like it is on the one hand and being inspiring. That that tension may, you may be able to get around it, right. but that on the surface, that's a very evident fact about inspiration. So here's another plausible correlative inspiration. So I, I take us maybe to be taking the simple intellectual strategy. Let's collect some correlates of this thing. I don't take myself to be taking that strategy, <laughs> but go on. Okay, but you offered a correlate and I'll offer another possible correlate which is that 
we find it easier to be inspired by a person that we admire in a substantial way. That is, inspiration comes not from an abstract idea or an abstract argument. It comes from a particular person making a particular pitch and our relating to them, identifying with them, admiring, uh, and being engaged by their particular pitch of inspiration. That seems to me an important element of inspiration. It's not, it's hard to pull away from a more particular pitch. A particular person tries to inspire us mm. and what we think about that person and the quality of that presentation. Famous inspirational speeches aren't just good arguments. They have these other characterizations of the speeches in the context that we admire. The person who's giving it, the, the day in which it's given, the the cadence of the speech, the metaphors offered, um, you know, the poetry of the language. All of these things seem substantially important in being inspired. Yeah, and often inspiration is going to be connected to something like having a hero or a role model. I think not always, but often. So that would be a case where your attachment to the person is going to be a big part of what does the work in uh, being inspired by like their vision or what they say. So I've just been reading Gerard in preparation for an event in a week. Gerard. Gerard. And he would, his emphasis on mimetic desire would say, you know, in essence that to inspire you to desire something, what we, someone needs to do is to inspire you to want to be like someone or to have what they have, uh, that they need to be in your mind, the sort of person worthy of that kind of jealousy or envy or admiration. And that's a big part of what would make you like something or want something. Yes, I think that that's right. But I also just think the people who inspire us are often going to be people who um, speak to the things that we want. It goes both ways. Um, so, I mean, so, 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 you know, the reason I brought up the reductive view and how that is typically uninspiring is that. Um, there, I think that for all of us, there are a bunch of values that we have where we don't feel like we have a very good grip on those values. Things like courage or friendship or um, religious values. Like we, we, we would say that we value those things, but they feel kind of fuzzy or hazy to us. And the people who we find inspiring are often the ones who we feel like they put us in better touch with those values. And so I don't think it's just we decided to admire some people and then whatever they say is going to go. Right. I think we partly pick those people because they're the ones who kind of channel for us something that we anyways wanted to get a clear grip on. Although the causation could go in either direction. It could be that they give us a clear grip and then we like them more. It could be that we like them more and then decide we have a clear grip because we like them more. So either way it could work. Yeah. And so maybe like insofar as we're interested in 
the case of, let's say, rightful inspiration. That is, you brought up earlier, well, could there be a kind of inspiration that didn't involve lying or that didn't involve deception or bullshit or whatever? Um, um, we're going to be interested in the case where um, your attachment to the person is driven by the fact that they do, in fact, put you in touch with a value that is, in fact, good. So we could call that rightful inspiration. So, yeah, it could work both ways, but we'll be especially interested in the cases where it's veridical in some sense. So this may be a slight tangent, but it occurs to me that there's this literature on authenticity. And most people say they want to be authentic and appeals to authenticity do seem to inspire people somewhat. And the literature on authenticity says that when we ask people about different versions of themselves and which is the most authentic version of themselves, they tend to pick the version of themselves that other people like most as the most authentic. That is, whichever version of you is the one that other people would praise or admire uh, is the one you decide is your authentic self. Mm -hmm. um, which seems related at least. That is, you are, you're, you are inspired to this version of yourself, this vision of yourself, to the degree that you can see other people embracing and supporting and admiring it. Right. And it may be that there are other things about yourself that you think are good and that you would be very happy to call your authentic self, but you just don't have enough help from other people in getting a grip on those things. And so they just sort of, they're just sort of too blurry for you to say, that's me. And if somebody came along and admired you for that, all of a sudden it would become your authentic self in the sense that you really would become sort of clear on what that thing was by way of that person's help. So if I think of, say, famous inspirational speeches, like, say, by Churchill or something in World War II, there's a sense in which you can criticize them as flattering some degree, their audience, which is related to, you know, being willing to give the audience the benefit of the doubt about their aspirations about themselves. That is, Churchill's speech says, our situation is tough here, but in essence, I believe that you are up to this. You can be told the truth and you won't shy away and you will stick with this out till the end because like me, you are determined and you are noble and you are you know, just and, and won't falter, right? And this is a common formula in, in standards like inspirational wartime speeches or something, right? Is to express a confidence in the audience that might seem unjustified uh, in some objective terms, but you know, seems to be emotionally true that they are actually confident in you and they are holding up this version of you that you might aspire to and might hope to be. And they're saying, you can do it. I mean, this is almost classic inspirational speech, right? Like coach at halftime, <laughs> you can win this game, right? It seems like there is not a more than an accidental connection here between inspirational speeches or versions and finding a way to let an audience believe in themselves in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, 
more broadly, you might think that all persuasion involves flattery. Um, because in general, if I'm persuading you of something, I'm trying to get you to believe it. I'm trying to get you to change your mind about it. Um, and what do I have to do? Well, in general, I have to make you feel like you know this thing, this new thing that I want to get you to think. I have to give you the feeling of like, yeah, that's that's right. I know that. And uh, people who are good at persuading are good at inducing that feeling in people. And it may be that what you're trying to persuade people of is like they can win this battle or it may be that, you know, you want to persuade them of some, um, uh, you know, claim in popular science or whatever, but it doesn't really matter. Um, you're trying to you're trying to get them to feel like they know something and the good persuader will know both what are the things that you can say that it's likely that people will come to feel that they know and how can you induce that feeling in them. It's not particular to inspirational speeches. So this might sound like a tangent, but I don't think it is. I often have the feeling that at any one moment, I could just have ecstatic joy if only I would allow myself to. Mm -hmm. That it's a potential within me, and it's not some outside force that presents, prevents it. It's my own reluctance to mm -hmm. just embrace that ecstatic joy. And you might think, in some sense, you know, we have motivations like the joy. We have motivations inside ourselves that are available to us that we won't quite allow to express themselves. We don't feel justified or legitimized to allow those motivations to, to, to be realized. But in some sense, an inspirational speaker can convince us that we are allowed to, and maybe, and it's okay. You know, it's there, it's potential, and it's okay if we let it be expressed. We can be patriotic, for example, in a Churchill speech, as we have the potential to be patriotic and we know it's there. We could be really proud in our country, but we typically don't. And he's saying, it's okay. Here it is. I point to this patriotism in this, this, this way in which you could feel very bound to the rest of us in this country in this time of struggle. And I'm going to tell you that you can and point you to it. And then you will then release this block on your motivation and then feel inspired. Yeah, so I think I think that's a really good connection. Um, but I, I think there's a really important distinction between the joy and the motivation. Because joy is just like pleasure and happiness. Um, but motivation is like going to drive you to do stuff, right? So those are very different sorts of states. And so you might say, well, I, so I think we can explain why you don't just allow yourself to feel the joy all the time. Um, um, Freud called that like the pleasure principle. In effect, one of the things that he found to be the most puzzling things about psychology is why don't we just hallucinate the satisfaction of all of our desires and and die because we never get food because we're able to do that. So why don't we just do it all the time, right? So, so his whole theory of psychology is built around trying to solve that problem. That's sort of like the problem of why don't I just feel joy? But the problem of why don't I just feel motivation, I think is slightly different, which is that um, we... Each of us have decided something like, this much in life is enough for me. This is good enough. This is a good enough life. This is a happy life. This much health is enough health. This much money is enough money. This much love for my family is enough love for my family. All the things I have in life, like there's some amount where that's that's basically good enough. 
And because otherwise, how are you going to ever be like satisfied or happy? And so you're not motivated to try to get any more of those things, really, because you told yourself it's enough. And there's something dangerous about the thought. No, you just have more of everything because that's also like being perpetually dissatisfied and just perpetually wretched. Right. And nobody wants to go around being wretched all the time. And so I think a motivational someone, you know, who speaks to you and who motivates you releases that block on your motivation by reassuring you that they're not just going to be telling you you shouldn't be satisfied and you should want more. They're not just going to be a council of greed. And I really think that is what is unmotivating about the end recent thing. Yay, progress. It just feels like a council of greed. It feels like he's saying, look, however much you have now of wealth and health and um, entertainment and diversion and whatever, you just have way more of those things. And I think it meets up with this block saying, look, I've told myself that this is okay, what I've got, and that's good enough. And I think the truly motivating person doesn't tell you you can have more of all those things. They tell you you can have some totally other thing. I think this is right. Imagine a salesperson trying to convince you to buy something. They could make the pitch, just buy more of everything. Right. <laughs> just open your wallet. Just just buy everything you like, everything you see. And we're going to see, and that's not going to work. <laughs> so we want to see a pitch that says why this thing as opposed to everything else. And say in the Churchill War speech or something, he's saying, this is a moment an unusual moment in history is going to make you, they're really important to say, this is an especially unusual moment. And that's why you need to at least temporarily release this block on this particular important motion, because we're not going to keep demanding this forever. We're just going to ask for this thing a few special times. And, and I, I guess I feel like the opposite of the invitation to motivation is, is the weariness of motivation. I, I definitely know that at some points in my life, I've just been pursuing some motive for a long time, like getting a degree or whatever it is. And there's a weariness. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm continuing to do this, but like, maybe I'm a bit sorry I committed to this because I have to keep going with this because I feel like I can't just drop motivations too quickly. I'm, I'm reluctant to adopt them because once I adopt them, they're just going to be there for a while and they're going to play out. And then at some point, I could just be really weary and tired and broken down by that motivation that could have just, you know, I'm going with it, but geez, maybe I shouldn't have. It's like writing a book. <laughs> right. You're describing my life right now. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's yeah. why you're reluctant to decide to write a book, right? Somebody has to inspire you to write a book in the first place, you or somebody else. And that's the reluctance that's that they have to overcome is because you know two-thirds of the way through writing the book, you're just going to be so tired of it. Right. So so, so that seems like almost an independent problem, which is that certain sorts of motivations are hard to sustain over a long period. Like, hunger isn't. I mean, it comes and goes, and that's part of it, right? Um, um, but there are many kinds of motivation that we're not like, oh, I'm so tired of the fact that I have to eat, even though we did it every right. day. But whole then night. we're not very reluctant to admit we're hungry. Because we know it will pass, right? Yeah. We're not committing to a lifetime of hunger by admitting that we're hungry. And so it's okay to say, are you hungry? And you're going, yeah, yeah, I'm hungry. Let's get something to eat. 
But like, suppose that you, you know, were like probably most human beings throughout time, which is that you never really got enough food. So you're always like a little bit hungry. And all that happened was your hunger would be diminished a little bit during some periods. I still feel like it's unlikely you would have been like, oh, I'm so weary of being hungry. There's just a way in which hunger sustains itself and you don't get like tired of it. I think you'd you'd admit the peaks of hunger and you'd admit that. But when you got to the mild hunger, which is the usual case, you would you would not admit to that. Mm. <laughs> you would just say, I had enough. And if somebody could press you, well, you could eat a little more, couldn't you? And you might admit it then. But what you're trying to say is like, I don't want to go through all my life feeling this presence of hunger. I'm going to have hunger be these special occasions. And this other thing, even though I could eat more, I'm not going to call that hunger. And I'm not going to acknowledge a motivation about it because that'll just be too much. Okay, so maybe that is like the thing I was saying um, where, you know, you, with respect to most things, you just tell yourself you have enough. Right. Um, And you're not perpetually in this state of trying to get more of them. Um, and, and that, that I think is an interesting way in which human psychology really does diverge from the usual economist model of it, right? Which is that for any, you know, on any margin, like you could be, if you got to get some good thing, you would go for it. And, and that in some sense, you're always alert to that. But in fact, I think you're actually, you actually actively shut it down, um, and decide to be contented with, you know, some bundle right. of goods and not improve it. Well, I think you have to be careful how you express whether you want more. So I, I think a person, say, who doesn't usually get completely full, <laughs> who usually stops eating when they're not completely full and then goes on till the next day when they're much more hungry and eats until they're not completely full, there's a sense in which that person, when they stop, they say, I've had enough. But there's also a sense of if that person in which in the middle of the day, you put down a cookie in front of them and say, you want it? <laughs> they might just take it, right? Yeah. So even though they weren't pursuing it and in their mind, it wasn't part of their goals, they weren't hungry and they were looking for food, but you put the food in front of them, they might take it. Sure. But if, if, if that, I mean, maybe that gets to like, what are we describing when we describe, you know, human agency? Are we describing a weird hypothetical scenario where if you put some stuff in front of someone, what choices would they make? Or are we describing like the actual choices people make, which involve being motivated to go out in the world and try to get some more food, which maybe they could do, but they're not going to do because they've told themselves that they've had enough. And, you know, the the like, um, would they pick up the cookie is going to describe like how people behave in certain kinds of um, test settings. Right. But. Um, well, it might happen in reality. That it it might even want to happen that a, that a cookie pops up in front of them and then they would eat the cookie. But but the point is that they wouldn't be driven to go out and seek a cookie, even though they would eat one if it were placed in front of them. And the reason right. they would like it because it's just an important fact about the way in which they would value an extra cookie that they've also sort of shut themselves out of that motivation so that it can't organize their mental life into, say, a deliberative process. Right. So the economist might say the fact that you would take the cookie if it was offered does, in one sense, you mean you have these unlimited desires because, you know, you don't say no to the cookie. But we could also say, but there's this different 
set of what you mean by desires. Yeah. Which are more tied up to what you're willing to consciously plan around and describe yourself as having. And pursue. So may maybe what this reveals is that there really is a difference between preferences and motivation. You could have a preference, but it could yeah. be motivationally inert um, in that it cannot set you in motion towards that goal if it's at any distance from you. But, you know, if somebody put it in front of you, you'd take it. Um, so that, you know, you can't explain motivation simply in terms of preferences because you have to you have to ask, are the preferences switched on in some sense? Right. Now we could think of, you know, in some sense, motivation is describing, you know, a set of plans, for example, like which things will you in fact act on if they show up? Mm-hmm. Or you could describe it as a set of um, drives that are you willing to consider in your planning um, that then can move you. Uh, I, I mean, these all seem perfectly fine if I was making a formal math model. But the interesting question here is what's what's getting at the key puzzling part here? So, so to me, the puzzling part to keep my mind focused on it is that motivation feels like magic, the closest thing to magic in the world. That is, sometimes people are motivated and then they pursue things and then sometimes they don't. And that difference is produced by words that other people say or incantations or abstract visions or feelings they have. And it's just hard to see what else causes that. Like what, what makes the difference between someone? I mean, you know, you and I have met people, even students sometimes who just go, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Everything just, you know, I could do all these things, but I have no idea what I might want to do. And there's just these people who are in this situation where they seem to be unmotivated. And yet, you know, they have health and they have intelligence and they have options in front of them. And then there's other people who in similar situations seem very motivated. They've got a plan and they've got stuff they want. And they could tell you excitedly about the, the hopes they have for what might happen if they do various things. And they could tell you about what they've been reading that like that triggered this, et cetera. And those two people can just look the same from a distance. And one has motivation and the other doesn't. So maybe one way to think about motivation in relation to preferences, it, it, it may be that on some, you could imagine that the two people um, would have the same preferences judged in a certain way. That is, if you give them pairs of items and you ask them to choose, they make right. all the same choices, right? Um, and but they 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 have different they differ in respect of motivation. Where you could think of motivation as switching on a preference to the so that the preference can then, like like no, um fact number one about it, you're aware that you have it. Right. So that would be right. because you could have a preference and not know that you have it. And you could even be surprised by the fact that you make a certain choice. Right. Because you didn't even know that you wanted the cookie until you grabbed it. So 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 step number one would be making you aware that you have the preference. And then and then there's a bunch more stuff, which is like. Being willing to put your deliberative apparatus and your like planning mind in the service of the preference, which, for instance, if you were ashamed that you had it, you wouldn't be do right. and stuff. Right. And so. So motivation kind of does something like that, and it does it. In, I mean, it may it may be that you know, 
our preferences vary in terms of the degree to which they need to be turned on. And like hunger would be one that paradigmatically for most people doesn't require a lot of switching on from the mo from the, an inspirational speech or something like that. Though maybe for the person that we've been describing who is never totally full, we could say to them, look, remember, remember in, um, in independent people when they were just all hungry all the time and then they finally got a cow and they had the milk and they had all this energy, like more energy right. than they had before. Like they were all hungry. They didn't even realize it. And we could imagine going to their door and giving some kind of inspirational speech like, look, you people are hungry and you need more food and you need to get a cow to ha so that you can have more calories um, and your lives are going to be better. And that would be like a thing where we could imagine doing inspirational speech to motivate people to notice and activate a certain preference that usually doesn't require it. So an analogy comes to mind of being in love. So I think there's this relatable scenario where person A is attracted to B, but reluctant to admit their attraction mm -hmm. to themselves or anyone else. And Israel certainly reluctant to act on that attraction. Mm -hmm. But in a certain sense, is already in love, but doesn't admit it. And so they don't, they aren't motivated in a sense by the love. Mm. In, I mean, they're motivated in some ways. They might like try to be in the same room as the other person sometimes if they could, you know, without being noticed. They might think about the other person at times, right? So they are somewhat motivated by this other person they're in love with, but they're in denial or have not accepted this idea. Mm -hmm. And then a moment could come when they are willing to accept this for themselves. Oh, I'm in love with them. And at that moment, their behavior will change. They may now be willing to sort of ask the other person how they feel or take some more overt action or at least do things different because mm -hmm. now in their mind, they've owned this idea that they're in love. And it's now available as a motivation. I mean, this feeling was always there, available as a motivation. Mm -hmm. But they weren't owning it or releasing it. It was blocked, basically. Right. And then they open it up as a motivation and release it. And then they can like notice they're in love. They can even think about being in love. They can think about what to do, then feel very anxious about it, et cetera, because it's now released as a motivation. Right. And the, and the thing happens in the reverse later when people have thought they were in love and then decide and then no, we're no longer in love, but haven't admitted that either. Mm -hmm. And then that's not available as a motivation either because they presuming that they are in love. Right. And so the, the thing they could do to leave this person or to do something else is not available to them as a motive because it's blocked, blocked by their presumption that they are in love. So this is, explains something kind of interesting that I've always wondered about. So, well, first off, um, there is, it's a striking, if you look at all the inspirational speeches that have ever been given in the whole history of time in any format, I think a high percent of them are going to be about love. Um, so like, like most pop songs yeah. are about love. Um, uh, a lot of poetry is about love. Um, and if you look at like, 
TV okay. shows that are kind of inspirational or heartwarming, a lot of the time, the thing that's inspirational is the romantic storyline. Like, remember Cheers? Right. The thing that kept people <laughs> watching was like, are Sam and Diane going to get together? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so there's a way in which that's what inspires us, right? So, so, so that would suggest, on the one hand, that um, the love motivation is one that is especially needful of this release. Um, that is, we are somehow very inclined to shut down our love motivations or to pretend that they're not there. And then we're very grateful to these many sources that will then help us actually like admit that it's there. That's on the one hand. But the, the second part is the part that I've often been mystified over. If you go online and you hear people talking about problems in their relationships or even just like women and their women friends talking about problems in their relationships, people are really, really eager to tell one another to like break up with the person. Break up with him. He's not good right. for you. You know, you need to get out of this relationship. It's a toxic relationship that it's just very rare to hear. No, you should tough it out. It might work out like relative to especially if the people don't know each other. Well, it's just a default to you should break. Right. And maybe that's also something for the same reason, which is that it's a thing people need to hear. That is, if you really were in a situation where you needed to break up, you would tell yourself that you weren't in such a situation and you need to be inspired to break up and so we both need to be inspired to be in love and to not be in love i th i think that's right um there there's this standard randomized trial a, a great econ experiment where basically they just said if you're having trouble making a decision come to our website and we will flip a coin for you and then that can make your decision for you and then later on come tell us how it went <laughs> and what they found was that when people went with the coin flip decision to make a change, they were happier rather than when they didn't make a change. So on average, people, it seems, are holding back on change. So then the question is, why are people being reluctant to change? Well, that gets to the broader issue, right? That, so that speaks to the reason we don't, it's because we've told ourselves that, everything, that we're okay with our lives as they are. But I was interested in the idea that in the romantic arena, this is going to be especially true. So it would be interesting if there were a subset, if they could look at the subset of questions that were about romance. I mean, maybe they didn't, maybe people didn't even right. say what the decision was about. But if they had gotten information and if they looked at the romance questions and then they found that, like, here's what we should be, we should be predicting in some sense that they would be even happier with their changes in that arena because we're even more stuck or even more blocked. Okay. with respect to romantic motivations than generally. We're generally blocked. We're specifically okay. blocked. Okay, so I'm generating this hypothesis in my mind that you can shoot down if you if, if it's false, but it seems like when we make a big decision, like releasing a motivation or unreleasing motivation is a big decision in our life, right? It's a, it's a big thing to do. It'll have a lot of impacts, and we're reluctant maybe to do it, and then we might do it. I think we we feel like the moment of decision should just, we ha we're romantic about it. We're idealistic. That is, we want a lot of positive signs about that moment. So okay. that when we look back on that moment of our decision, we can endorse that decision because of all the other positive signs about that moment. And that's why like an admirable person pushing you towards something could be helpful in having you make the decision because you can look back on that moment and you say, well, you know, I was listening to this beautiful song. Uh, I was watching the sunset, uh, just had a nice meal. Like the more 
positive signs about the context of your decision you could point to, the more you could say, I made a good decision then. And you're reluctant to make these big decisions unless something legitimizes that. That's in some sense the essence of the inspirational speech. You're not willing to just choose to release this motivation because you've made a calculation that maybe this is the right time to do it. You want support, uh, a friend to be with you, uh, to have pushed you or an inspirational movie or song or something there. You, you want that added support for making the change. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm just not inclined to think that it's a decision. That is, I mean, look, maybe we could put it this way. Um, 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 we could use the word decision in two ways. One way we could use it is to describe if someone's like, um, like here's a cookie and then, um, uh, uh, like here's a chocolate chip cookie versus like an oatmeal raisin cookie, which do you want? And like, obviously you're going to go for chocolate chip. Right. And you made a decision there. Um, you made the decision, but it's like all that decision was was the expression of your preference for chocolate chip over oatmeal. Right. You have to ponder it or whatever. Right. And that's, that's one kind of decision. And, and 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 in that sense, it's it's almost like just a movement of your mind. Right. Um, and then there's another kind where like you're like, what should I do today? You know, I should do something productive and well, I have, you know, and with so and so and like you and you reason it through and you're like, you know what? It would be really good is like if i baked something with one of my children or something like that and then you decide to do that that that's also a decision and I, I, maybe i guess the thing that strikes me about these cases of the release of motivation is they're much more like the first kind of decision than the second that is they're not the kind of decision where you're going to be aware exactly that you're making it sure you're not going to be reflective about it you're not going to deliberate your way to the decision you're not going to say to yourself, wait, should I make this decision? Wait, let me see if it's inspirational enough situation. Okay, inspirational. I, I, I'm not suggesting conscious deliberation. But, so here's more of, a, of an image. Imagine you're tense. Like, there's a sense in which you could just choose not to be tense, but not really. Okay. And then- yeah, that, imagine, I don't think there is that sense. Because, okay. But imagine you're just tense. And then somebody comes up and touches your shoulder or strokes your cheek even- says something soft and then you relax right and now make you more be willing to relax your clenched holding on something etc that's more what i have in mind that is you have this block on this motivation and that's a tension you're, you're tensely holding it and it's unconsciously just a holding you're not relaxed enough to let it go yeah and some and part of the environment has to come along to make you relax yeah. enough to to let go to let go of the block yeah and and what relaxes you is beautiful music nice sunset comforting voice you know an admirable speech like it's just i mean you could think of it as a choice i mean in some sense subconsciously your 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 mind was designed to have this conditional behavior and in that sense it's a choice but it's i'm thinking of it more like you've clenched in and holding this motivation. You're not letting it out. You're not releasing it. And then something inspires you to release it. And it's some sense like a soft stroke, <laughs> something that just makes your body relax, makes your mind relax and makes you willing to let go. 
it's interesting because like I get why you're talking about relaxation, but um it's often the case that these sort of inspirational speeches, what they do, it feels like the opposite of relaxation and well, it's gonna energizing. energize you. Right. But energizing yeah. and relaxing aren't exactly opposites. Yeah. That is sometimes you you could just be clenched, right? And frozen intention yeah and there's a lot of energy in the tension but it's a stable situation yeah right and then when you relax you can release something and then there can be motion and energy in the release yeah i wonder whether um like this is um whether this partly explains why some people are introverts and some people are extroverts. That is, some people find the presence of other people in ordinary social situations to be relaxing and to allow them to release motivations that they otherwise have. And other people, it's the opposite. Um, and, and, and it's very relaxing. Like, I, 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 I call myself an extrovert but then the people around me tell me that that's not really true. And the way in which, like, I suppose that reveals it's not untrue would be I, I, I actually just didn't believe it when I heard that there were people who didn't feel relaxed when the, uh, finally a social encounter ended and they could be by themselves. I thought that's just intrinsically relaxing. Like, obviously, right. that's what everybody feels. And some people are right. lying. Um, but I, and spending enough time talking to people, I realized, no, there's some people who... It's not true that everyone, but everyone, that's the relaxing experience. For some people, the relaxing experience is when they show up to a party and there are all these social encounters. Um, and so just the presence of other people, even forget about what they say, that the presence of people can be inspiring to some and then whatever the opposite of inspiring right. would be, which I'm not sure what word we should use for it, but the thing that make you hold in all your motivation. Right. So if I think of like, the classic sales scenario, even seduction scenario, they do seem to roughly fit. They're, the customer initially is reluctant and holding back, right? Mm -hmm. And they are keeping a distance even. And then part of the tactic of the salesperson or seducer will be to try to get them to relax and mm -hmm. looking for sort of any avenue of connection. And get, you know, it's like for a salesperson, just get them to start talking about anything get them to relax a bit, you know, talk about something relaxing, offer them something relaxing, right? In general. I mean, so those are contexts where you're trying to induce motivation, sales or seduction, mm -hmm. and you try to get them to release something that they're clenched and holding <laughs> their money or their emotions. And then inspiration in those cases, we, we could say, you know, the salesperson inspired you to buy something, the in seducer inspired you to romance um and it does fit the model of a reluctant clenched distant person who is doing less and feeling less and protecting themselves against a risk and then an inspirer who tries to get them to open up 
and then to be relaxed and then to be more comfortable and feel less threatened by this potential motivation. It still just seems to me, though, that there's a difference between inspiration and other ways that you could make people comfortable with. So, so for example, I've noticed that and I read this thing in the New Yorker about returns and the business of returns. It's just like this huge, you know, people just return a ton of stuff online. And the reason why they return so much stuff is that people won't buy something online unless they know they can return it. And I even like, you know, you can charge half the price for something, but if they can't return it, they will, they'll, they'll, they'll buy it for more because they want to be able to return it. And so Clearly, people find that very comforting, the thought that I can return something. Um, and But I don't think they find it inspiring. I wouldn't use that word to describe it. So there are things that can disarm your... They can, they can put you more off guard or they can, like, disarm your, um, you know, self-protective mechanisms, like free returns, um, that, that are not inspiring. So it does seem that we could talk about a, a hierarchy or gradation of motivations. And if we just get used to buy something on Amazon, there's a sense in which we motivated you to do something and inspired you to a low degree, but it's a mild inspiration, hardly worth the term. And then there are, you know, the clouds open and you change your religion because you see God above or whatever, you know, very extreme forms of inspiration. All on the road no, to Damascus. No, I, I don't think that's the right distinction because I think that there's definitely so 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 take a. I was recently on a website. I was buying my husband pants, and uh, I this website had you could free free returns, and I'm like, oh good, good that there's free returns. And then they also had this these slogans because these were wool, more wool, less plastic. Now there they are trying to inspire me to buy their pants. By saying, look at this better world that I could be living in, this more environmental world, but also somehow this more natural world of wool as opposed to plastic clothing. Um, that, I would say, is an attempt at inspiration, whereas the free returns anytime we're going to make it easy for you will also increase your chances of purchase. It, they both increase the chance of purchase. They both are this lever on the same thing, but the one does it by inspiration, the other is not by inspiration. So maybe our conversation so far has gotten farther with motivation than inspiration. Maybe yeah. we have a handle on the process of motivation or releasing motivations. Right. And like, inspiration is only one way of doing that. Or one kind of motivation or something that is. So it, it does, the, the very word inspiration does seem to suggest some degree of aspiration or some sort of relatively high light opening, you know, joyish kind of motivation as opposed to fear, stress, um, anxiety, um, all of which can motivate. Yeah, um, that's right. And so, and I guess it's odd to say, for example, that a lot of famous war movies have a inspirational war speech because you might think, well, that's when you're especially stressed. <laughs> you're not like in the like, this will be great mode. You're in the like, how, how terrible will this be mode? And then maybe though, that's especially when we like the taste of, of the joy, open glory possibility to, to color it with. Or maybe 
that's especially when viewers of a movie about war right <laughs> right that that is they've they've you know buckled in for like a grim thing with lots of shooting and killing but they owe lots of nice experiences too and right um uh so so um um but I, like you're yeah, right i so i think the thing that i was saying earlier speaks more to the question of inspiration namely there are certain things that you want certain preferences that you have where it's not exactly that you have tamped them down and are not allowing them to motivate you. That may be true about your desire for more wealth or more health or whatever, more food or clothing. It's not that you've tamped them down. It's that you don't really feel like you have a good grip on them. And like, I think patriotism is an example. A lot of these kind of sacred motivations, patriotism, courage, um, friendship, love, they are things where we want them in our lives, but we're not sure what it even means to want them. And so it's less that the inspiring person removes a block, but that they actually sort of show us the way, show us the way to want that thing that we otherwise don't know how to want. So we're running out of time, but but we seem to be perhaps coming to a closing thesis that fits this all together. Uh, let me just suggest that inspiration is sacred motivation, literally, and that in my recent analysis of the sacred, the key element of the sacred would be seeing things together with other people the same. And so an inspiring speech is going to not just point to something in you that you're already motivated by, but convince you that you and they and other people are seeing something the same by helping you see it, but also helping you see that they are seeing it at the same time as you in the same way. You are, it's legitimately sacred to the degree that you and a community are seeing it the same. And in some sense, we never actually get that clear a view of sacred things. But we do get a clear view that we are seeing it, whatever we're seeing, we're seeing it the same. And for example, a romantic song or something, you have these mixed emotions about your romance. You're not sure what's legitimate, but now the song tells you that you and lots of other people can see romance in this certain way that the song does. And that allows you to more see it yourself that way because it's a sacred view of romance and this is a community that you feel part of, and now you're more willing to release this version of this motivation inside you that fits this sacred view of romance described in the song. I guess the way that I would put it is that there are certain values that we're only able to pursue or to get into view with the help of other people. And so seeing it together with them is not some independent desideratum. It's just what it is to get a grip on this thing because we just can't see it by ourselves. And that, you know, somebody who kind of gives you a way to see it with other people both puts you on the track of it, but also kind of makes you feel reassured that we can make progress with respect to this thing, that we can all maybe, or maybe we're getting better at it, we can get a clearer view, someday we'll be able to grasp it well, something like that. I think we're agreeing on the elements of the situation. 
but maybe not necessarily agreeing on the causal order. <laughs> What's the more fundamental thing causing the less fundamental thing? But we both agree that in this situation, there is a seeing something clearer and a seeing it together with others. And mm -hmm. that these two elements are together allowing you to more release this motivation in a sense, because it's now more legitimate. Um, and a more able to act on that is if there's a more vivid version of it that you can then act on the, the singer who sings the love in the song, you can more see your love as the kind of emotion they have. And that more allows you to embrace your feelings about whatever person you're feeling about by that, seeing that version and the fact that it's not only clearer, but it's seen to be the shared thing. We in this community who listen to this love song together see it this way. Yeah, I guess I just wouldn't talk in those cases about releasing the motivation. Because it isn't as though you've kept it pent up. It's that you don't have any way for it to motivate you. That is, you just, it's sort of like, suppose that I really wanted to read a certain book. And then you're like, well, look, it's right over there. And then I would go and get the book, right? I mean, we could say you released my motivation to read the book, but like, it's not as though I was like, no, no, I can't let this motivate me. It was just that I didn't know there was an avenue by which I could pursue it. And so that does seem to be a, an interesting and significant difference between the way in which the salesman releases my motivation to buy more stuff. Like he sort of convinces me that it's okay for me to spend more money, which is kind of what I wanted to do anyway. But I, I had to tell myself, no, don't do it. And the way in which the inspirational person gives me an avenue of um, allows me to, in some sense, to get started wanting. So if, say, I was actually in love with somebody, but not admitting it yet, and then I hear this song about mm -hmm. a singer singing about in love with somebody, and then the image of this other person comes to my mind mm -hmm. in the context of hearing that song, and at this moment, I feel like, oh, I'm in love. Right. Like The moment of... The moment of realization, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, it's ambiguous maybe how mechanically that worked. And you and I are describing sort of perhaps different micro-mechanics theories of how it works. But from a distance, we're agreeing on roughly the overall phenomena that hearing the song with this vision of what love is could let me see my love in a way I couldn't without it and then right. allow me to accept that I'm in love. Right. The relevant difference is what was true of you beforehand. And there are two different things we could say was true of you. One is we could say, oh, you were in love all along, but you just didn't know it. And that, you know, this thing was fully determinate, but you just didn't have access to it. And then I think it's more like a salesman or you were in some kind of indeterminate wobbly state. And then you kind of learned to like, transform that into this more, you know, specific, particular state of loving this person. And then I think it's more like inspiration. I just think there probably are both sorts of cases exist. And that would be the difference between the inspiration case and the, um, like, kind of comfort or release case. And I think we'll have to leave it there. 
for today. Not solve this issue, but uh, thank you for talking, Agnes. Okay.